Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Silence is complicity. Palestine is going to be an issue that's going to come up in the presidential elections. If you want to run for president of the United States of America, you better come up with an opinion about this. And it better be an opinion that centers the human rights of the Palestinian people. I'm Mehdi Hassan, and welcome to Deconstructed. Today, I want to talk about Gaza, Jerusalem, Palestine, Israel. And I want to do something very weird, very odd. I want to talk about all those issues with two Palestinian guests, Rula Jibrail and Linda Sassor. Yeah, Palestinians. Why would you want to talk to Palestinians about Palestine? Madness, right? The failure of U.S. media to cover this in an unbiased manner will come back to haunt American media and American politics and Americans around the globe. On Monday, Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump and other members of this hideous administration were celebrating the opening of a new U.S. embassy in Jerusalem. While presidents before him have backed down from their pledge to move the American embassy once in office, this president delivered. While at that same time, a few miles away, hundreds of unarmed Palestinian protesters in Gaza were being shot at by Israeli snipers. More than 60 were killed in a single day, including kids. Yet the vast majority of U.S. media outlets, whether conservative or liberal, didn't want to hear from Palestinians. Like the U.S. government, they went into full pro-Israeli propaganda mode, blaming all of the violence and killing on Hamas, which, for all its many sins, didn't actually kill anyone this week. Only the Israeli military did. And yet... The White House is putting the blame solely on Hamas. The responsibility for these tragic deaths rests squarely with Hamas. What Hamas wants to do is have a lot of civilian casualties. They think that Israel will be blamed for these civilian casualties. Hamas is intentionally and cynically provoking this response. Let's start with with Hamas in Gaza. I mean, that was an act of human sacrifice. When you throw thousands of, of your youth, the flower of your youth, against an Israeli fence, it was inevitable that a lot of people were going to get killed. Israel was not going to open the border to them. That last voice was of Tom Friedman, liberal columnist at the liberal New York Times, basically dehumanizing and pathologizing the Palestinian people, as usual. The Washington Post went one step further. Their lead editorial accused Hamas of assembling, quote, thousands of nominal civilians at the Gaza border fence. Nominal civilians? What the hell are nominal civilians? Pretend civilians? Crisis actors? Again, this is the language of dehumanization, and it's brazen, it's blatant, It's shameless. Now, we covered the violence in Gaza on this show with the amazing Israeli human rights activists Haggai Al-Ad and Avner Gaviyahu just a few weeks ago. And if you haven't listened to that show, do please go back and have a listen. This week, I'll be talking to the Palestinian-American activist Linda Sarsour and to the Palestinian-Italian journalist Rula Jibrail, both of whom offer really valuable and unique perspectives on this issue. 
But first, I want to take a step back because there is a massive problem with the way the US media tend to cover this subject. Israel, they tell us, is just trying to defend its border against these mobs in Gaza that are throwing stones and burning tires for no good reason. Israel just wants to have foreign embassies located in its own capital city, Jerusalem. The problem is that this is not some generic conflict between two equal sovereign states. It's a conflict between occupied and occupier. And if you frame it any other way, you've completely lost the plot. To explain this a little better, we're going to go back in time a bit. Because history matters. Facts matter, especially on this show. So here we go. Jerusalem, a sacred place to Jews, Christians and Muslims. Today, it is a place of conflict between Arab and Jew. Back in 1947, the UN General Assembly passed Resolution 181, the partition plan for Palestine. It divided what was called Mandate Palestine into two states, a Jewish state and an Arab state. And under the partition plan, the holy and historic city of Jerusalem was supposed to be part of neither state. It was supposed to be an international city under international control. The language used in that resolution referred to Jerusalem as a corpus separatum, a separate legal entity. The Jewish state will include the ports of Haifa and Tel Aviv and the whole of the Negev Valley. The Arab will occupy the fertile eastern part. Jerusalem will come under United Nations trusteeship. Under UN trusteeship because it was considered such a holy city, such a contentious city, claimed by so many people. The problem is that in 1948, the Israelis fought what they call their War of Independence and what the Palestinians call their Nakba, their catastrophe in which they lost all their land. And after that war, by 1949, Jerusalem had been split into West Jerusalem, populated mainly by Jews and under control of Israel, and East Jerusalem, populated mainly by Palestinians and under the control of the Kingdom of Jordan. Now, let's fast forward 18 years to 1967. Relations between Israel and its neighbours had never normalised after that 1948 war, and in 1967, the tensions exploded. The tension in the Middle East over the Gulf of Aqaba blockade develops into full-scale war. Israel launched a preemptive strike against its Arab neighbours. Israeli spearheads raced to the Gaza Strip advanced across the entire Sinai. And invaded and occupied East Jerusalem in the process. And the diplomatic struggle over that illegal occupation dominated discussions at the United Nations. The six-day Middle East war echoes along a second front, the diplomatic struggle at the United Nations Security Council. Several UN resolutions were passed saying you cannot be controlling East Jerusalem. This is occupied territory, as much as the West Bank and Gaza are occupied territories. But the occupation has continued, becoming the longest military occupation in the world. In fact, by the 1980s, Israel had decided to basically annex East Jerusalem. And a law was passed in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, saying Jerusalem was the unified and undivided capital of Israel. The thing is, no one else agreed with Israel. Not their Arab neighbours, for sure. Not the United Nations either. Not the Europeans. Not even the US government, which considered East Jerusalem occupied territory right up until the Donald Trump administration, right up until late last year when the U.S. president made his now infamous announcement. It is time to officially recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. That was more than five months ago. And this week, on Monday, the U.S. formalized that Trump announcement by moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv. But just take a listen to how the president and other prominent US officials and former officials framed their dishonest argument in favor of that embassy move in the weeks and months running up to it. Israel is a sovereign nation with the right 
like every other sovereign nation, to determine its own capital. We're going to do like we do in every other country, and we're going to put the, the embassy in its capital. It's a no-brainer. It's the right thing to do. President Trump made the right decision. He stepped up and did it. It's inevitable that there'll be some criticism about it. That was respectively Donald Trump, his UN ambassador Nikki Haley, and of course George W. Bush's defense secretary Donald Rumsfeld, a blast from the past coming back to give us all his infamous pearls of wisdom on the Middle East. Look, it's a common argument from these guys that Jerusalem should be no different to any other capital city. Israel should be treated no differently to any other country. If Israel says Jerusalem is their capital, then we need to put our embassy there. But as the history makes clear, Israel is not like every other country. And Jerusalem is certainly not like other capital cities. When it comes to Russia and Ukraine, for example, the US government position is so crystal clear. You cannot annex Crimea in violation of international law. You cannot change borders by force. And the West, the international community, does not recognize Crimea as part of Russia. It's still part of Ukraine, is the international community's view even today. It's funny that when it comes to Russian aggression, Russian occupation, Russian annexation, we're very clear about what is and isn't okay. But when it comes to Israeli aggression, Israeli occupation, Israeli annexation in regard to Jerusalem, well, that's their capital. They should be able to do what they want with it. It's easier to say stuff like that when Palestinians are nowhere to be seen or heard in the US media, when their voices are silenced or erased, their suffering is disregarded, their basic humanity is questioned again and again. So my first guest today is someone with deep roots in Palestine, in Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem, a Palestinian who was raised in East Jerusalem and who has now become a journalist, author, academic and foreign policy analyst. Earlier, I spoke to Rula Jibreel about the U.S. embassy move and about the fact that you never can seem to tell from U.S. cable news coverage that this is occupied territory. Jerusalem is occupied territory. Most Americans don't even know that Palestinians don't have a state and don't have any basic rights. I think what President Trump did is emboldening more the extremists on both sides. So now Al-Qaeda and ISIS and every fanatical group around the globe is calling this a holy war. So this might be transformed from a, a political conflict or religious conflict, and this is a dangerous space. Uh, Ruler, what are your memories of growing up in East Jerusalem? What does Jerusalem mean to you as a Palestinian? Look, uh, my father worked at the Aqsa Mosque for almost 30 years. We lived uh, two blocks from the Dome of the Rock, the mosque. Uh, but also we had families who are Christians, and we celebrated Christian uh, holidays, uh, basically the uh, Christmas and, and Easter uh, in my school. My uh, memories are horrific memories of basically segregation. I remember when I was eight years old and I was walking to school with my father, we were rushing, and a soldier who was 20 at the time, maybe 19, stopped us and asked my father for his ID. My father gave him the ID and the kid, my father at the time uh, was in his late 50s, the Israeli soldier dropped intentionally in the mud that ID. And I remember he locked eye with my father and he said, grab it. 
So the humiliation, this is what I grew up seeing. My people, my, my relatives, my father humiliated and, and basically suppressed and oppressed on daily basis. I remember that was the first action where I decided to do something. And I was, you know, a tiny kid, but I grabbed the ID immediately and I gave it to my father. I said, we need to rush to school. I remember the tear gas. I remember the first intifada. I remember the shooting, the killing, uh, the arrest. But I also I remember my relatives who believe that Israel as a democracy sooner or later will allow citizens, Palestinians, to basically have equal rights. And the conversation in my neighborhood was, you cannot have, have it both ways. You cannot be a democracy and call yourself a democracy without extending equal rights to all citizens. What we're seeing now is full-blown apartheid regime settler dominating not only the country, dominating the political agenda. And we're seeing also the infiltration of religious fanatics in every, basically in every branch of government, but also the security apparatus. Why is it that Jerusalem as an issue, as a symbol, what I slightly struggle with, matters so much to the Palestinians and to the wider Arab and Muslim world? Why is it such a red line for the Palestinian leadership in a way that, say, settlement expansion hasn't been? I think Jerusalem has a special place in the hearts of millions of Christian and Muslims around the world. Jerusalem is the nuclear core of the conflict. For centuries, for centuries, the agreement between communities was... There's no domination of one group above another. I think except for eight years during the crusade, Jerusalem was always a shared formula, shared agreement between various communities, Muslim, Christian, and Jews. But the idea that one group put their hand on the most sacred place in the entire Middle East where it's shared among these three monotheistic religions, it entrenched the occupation to such level where it's a smack in the face of every community. So what do you say to a Jewish Israeli who says, look, this is our capital. This is the center of our identity. It always has been. It always will be. That's what Donald Trump's recognizing. This is also the center of identity of Palestinians, Muslims and Christian Palestinians. What's the solution? Jerusalem is not the capital of anything? West Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Nobody is denying that West Jerusalem under international law is the capital of. But what was occupied in 1967 is East Jerusalem. And I'm talking about the old city where I grew up, where I was raised, where my family come from, where there's native uh, indigenous people who lived there for generations, for centuries. Our ancestors are from there. I, I don't know who decide who belong where, and uh, but if you are an indigenous native Palestinian who was raised and born, who is the president of the United States tell you that you are not there because of a biblical uh, verse written somewhere? In, in This is not politics. This is not 21st century model of citizenship. The failure of U.S. media to cover this in an unbiased manner, will come back to haunt American media and American politics and Americans around the globe. That was foreign policy analyst, journalist and novelist Rula Jabril. Coming up, Palestinian-American... 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Activist and Bernie Sanders supporter Linda Sarsour on the Democrats' shameful silence over Gaza. We'll be back in a moment. Before we continue, last week, you may remember, I spoke about the Iran deal with Tommy Vita from Crooked Media. He hosts the Pod Save the World podcast for Crooked Media. Today, I just want to tell you about another podcast, also from Crooked Media. With Friends Like These is a show that explores the differences between us without letting them divide us. Host Anna Marie Cox has conversations with guests that you might not expect about what they believe, why they hold those beliefs, and how they arrived at them. It's not necessarily about finding common ground, but rather learning to see the world through someone else's eyes. She talks to Republicans, former white supremacists, people with completely different life experiences than her own, to discuss privilege, mental health, religious upbringings, and the experiences that shape our political beliefs. With Friends Like These comes out every Friday and is part of Crooked Media. So why is it that US liberals are so silent on what's going on in Jerusalem, in the West Bank, and especially in Gaza? How do you get prominent politicians from the Democratic Party to take seriously the Palestinian struggle for freedom? My next guest is best known for being one of the organisers of the Women's March and a prominent supporter of Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. But before that, she had a long history of activism related to Middle East communities and was executive director of the Arab American Association of New York. Her Palestinian parents came to the United States from the occupied West Bank. Linda Sarsour, welcome to Deconstructed. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Linda, is it fair to say that if Iran or Syria or Venezuela were currently gunning down unarmed protesters, killing dozens upon dozens, wounding thousands upon thousands week after week, U.S. politicians, uh, the U.S. liberal media would be up in arms condemning those killings, covering those killings, talking about those killings? Absolutely, 100%. I mean, unfortunately, Mahdi, the Palestinian people have been a discardable people for so long. Uh, They have been dehumanized. Their humanity has been taken away from them. And unfortunately, the Israeli government has um, been so far 
pretty successful around creating a narrative that Palestinian equals terrorists and there there is no such thing as an unarmed protester in the eyes of the Israeli government. So right now the 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 narrative is shifting and 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 no one can deny the brutality and the violence and the 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 very calculated massacres of unarmed protesters in the Gaza strip. There's no way that your eyes can deny you what you see. Yeah, so true. We're, you know, who are you supposed to believe? <laughs> the Israelis are your own lying eyes. Uh, I mean, it's interesting you talk about the narrative shifting. In the last 24 hours, 48 hours, it's, you know, ever since some Hamas guy said 50 of our people were killed, the Israelis are now jumping up and down and their apologists are saying, well, see, they're all Hamas. They all deserve to die. Number one, we don't know if they're all Hamas. And number two, simply being a member of Hamas doesn't mean you get the death penalty, especially if you're a kid, surely. You know, Hamas has been used as a red herring. And for folks that uh, are Palestinian and live in Palestine or have family who live in Palestine, people in Palestine are disillusioned with all the leadership. And we cannot say that the two million people who live in in the Gaza Strip, which is the world's largest open-air prison, are all Hamas. I think that argument, again, is being used over and over. And it was being used way before some guy stood up and said those are, uh, you know, folks from Hamas. They were using that before, Mm. saying that Hamas was being provocative. And I always wonder, why is it not provocative to be strangling two million people under siege for the past 11 years with inconsistent electricity, inconsistent water, they have lack of medical supplies. There's lack of jobs there. They're literally are. These are a hopeless people. There is no equation there. Mm. How do you explain so many Americans, uh, liberal Americans, progressive Americans, people who you stand shoulder to shoulder to on so many issues, who are such decent people and would you know have, have spent their lives trying to fight for equality, justice at home and abroad, but when it comes to this conflict, they bend over backwards to justify or defend the killing of Palestinians? How do you explain that? I try to find some rationalization when I think back uh, to the time when brave Americans stood up against the Vietnam War. And then I think about decades ago when people stood up against South African apartheid. It wasn't the entire progressive left. And it wasn't everybody that stood up against the, the those moments in history or stood up in those moments in history. And there are people in the progressive left that have stood up. I'm very proud of our colleagues and allies um, in the Black Lives Matter movement, in particular people of color and dreamers and people who I've been on the front lines with. Unfortunately, the people who are not speaking up that should be speaking up are the Democrats, because I don't expect much from the Republicans. But the Democrats have to understand that the voter base is becoming a lot more pro-Palestinian and a lot more progressive on this particular issue. And we saw that with the type of voter base that Bernie Sanders had during the election. It also was demonstrated in in me being a national surrogate as a Palestinian-American during the uh, 2016 primaries, where I stood on major platforms and stages for Bernie Sanders, um, proclaiming my commitment to the Palestinian people and 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 proclaiming my unapologetic Palestinian heritage. And the progressive left is moving in that direction. And if the Democrats want to win and if they want to build and rebuild the, the Democratic Party, well, they got to start talking and they got to start saying that what is, what is happening in Gaza, what is happening in Palestine is unacceptable. And to, to be honest, Mahdi, now is the time to do it. It's very easy because if you contextualize it with uh, but, this racist but Linda, administration. Now is, the time, now is the time they're not doing it. Now is the time they're not. I mean, Bernie Sanders, we'll come back to Bernie in a moment. Mm-hmm. Put Bernie Sanders to, to one side for a moment. The rest of the Democrats are not doing it. They're, you know, you look at their Twitter accounts. You look at the people who are running for president probably in 2020, mm-hmm. the Kamala Harris's, uh, you know, the Cory Booker's, uh, the Joe Biden's. There's silence from these people. I think 11 Democratic senators signed a letter this week 
week to the State Department urging more humanitarian aid, the easing of the blockade on Gaza, which is all good and well, but a very you know, a low bar. Only 11 were even willing to sign that letter. So it's pretty shameful to see these Democratic senators who would raise their voices on all sorts of other conflicts, Syria and the rest. They, they don't even say anything, let alone condemnation. Silence is complicity. And I'm telling you right now, Mahdi, knowing as someone who is a very, very integrated into the progressive movement, Palestine is going to be an issue that's going to come up in the presidential elections. And these, if you want to run for president of the United States of America, you better come up with an opinion about this. And it better be an opinion that centers the human rights of the Palestinian people. And I, and I know for a fact that that the progressive left, and particularly those who I organize with, are looking for that leadership and for those statements from those elected officials. And you're right, a lot of them haven't said something. And they haven't said anything some on, on both and are ignoring it like it's not even happening. But it's going to come back and bite them and they're going to be challenged. And we're going to make sure they're going to be challenged because we're going to make sure it's part of the platform that we push in the progressive left in the, tw- in the 2020 elections. I know, indeed. And we had a bunch of senators voting to confirm Gina Haspel, uh, who oversaw torture as a CIA chief this week. Um, I interviewed Bernie Sanders on Monday for The Intercept, Linda, and this is what he said about Israel, perhaps one of the strongest statements I've ever heard him make. They're terrible actions. Instead of applauding Israel for its actions, uh, Israel should be condemned. Israel has a right to security, uh, but shooting unarmed protesters is not what it is about. Bernie's actually moved on this issue, hasn't he, Linda? He was much more pro-Israeli back in Mm -hmm. 2014 during the Gaza war when the Israelis were killing around 500 Palestinian kids over the course of the summer. Progressives were criticizing uh, Bernie Sanders back then. Do you think it's because of pressure from below, from activists such as yourself, that he's actually moved? Absolutely. This is how politics works. It's all about building deep relationships. It's about conversations and it's about our consistency. And we as the progressive left have to learn consistency. Bernie it proved also, and you know this, Mehdi, he didn't win into the 2016 primaries. And I think it was for many other reasons. But I don't actually think he lost because of Palestine. He actually was applauded for his, uh, you know, in the during the New York debate with Hillary talking about the disproportionate, um, you know, aggression um, from from Israel. Yes, I remember. He actually was applauded by the majority of the progressive left movement. And I think t- towards the end, that actually became the breakthrough for the Democratic Party. And you saw the fights on the platform as the, as the Democratic Party was putting their platform together. Uh, so I, I see the evolution, but the Democratic Party got to get their folks to start talking because if you're not talking about Palestine, you're not going to see young people in your base during the 2020 elections. It's just not going to happen. But, but when you say start talking, the, the problem then becomes, what do you talk about? For example, you're a supporter of the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, the BDS movement, mm-hmm. which for a lot of U.S. Democrats and progressives, that's a line too far. It's a red line. It cannot be crossed. Even Bernie Sanders has come out very strongly against BDS. Does BDS, this idea of boycotting Israel, isolating Israel diplomatically, economically, financially, does it risk isolating the pro-Palestinian movement here in the U.S. from mainstream U.S. politics, from the wider progressive movement? Is that a danger? There, for me, there is no line because I don't need Bernie or Kamala or Corey to, to come join me and say we all sponsor or support the, the BDS movement. What I need them to do is to stand up against any policies that work against my right to engage in boycott, divestment, sanctions. This is a free speech matter. And there are bills being passed, including one recently in a place like South Carolina. So on a federal level, what I'm looking for is that you, you better not be an obstacle to my right 
based on the Constitution of the United States of America that allows me to organize nonviolently using tactics like boycott, divestment, sanctions. That's all I need. I don't need people to join my movement or it's not my movement, but our movement or the movement. I just need them not to work against my rights or support bills that work against our rights. And let me just ask you this. What do you think is the solution, if there is a solution to this conflict? Because people talk about two states living side by side. Other people talk about one binational state with everyone, Jewish, uh, Muslim, Christian, Arab, Zionist, whatever, everyone equal living inside of it. Where do you stand on it's that? It's logistically impossible, Mehdi, for there to be a two-state solution. So that really has to be off the table. And many people who believed in a two-state solution have said it's not possible. I believe in a, in a one-state solution. I believe every mm. man... Uh, one man, one vote. I believe in a in a in a in a diverse country where everybody's treated with dignity and respect. That everybody has access to employment, access to health care. That people can thrive and survive. And it's enough is enough. The Palestinian people have suffered seventy years, and 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 I don't know what else has to happen for people to understand that the Palestinian people deserve liberation and they deserve to live in a country that respects their humanity. And that's what I believe. I live in the United States of America, a diverse nation. One man, one vote. Everybody should have access to things. Obviously, as you see, that's why I'm an activist and an organizer, because not everybody gets at the same access. But we're working towards that. And that's I want to live in a country where people can participate in a democracy and, 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 and push their country to be a better nation. Just listening to you speak there so passionately about one person, one vote and civil rights. Do you think the U.S. civil rights movement, you know, what MLK and others did in the 60s, do you think that's a, a good analogy to use for American progressives to try and get them on board with the Palestinian freedom struggle to make that analogy? Absolutely. And I've been I've been working on, you know, telling stories and building in particularly with African-American communities, a community that I have a deep affinity to. When Dr. Martin Luther King went with his marchers on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, and when they walked over that bridge, Mehdi, guess what? They knew Bull Connor was on the other side. They knew they were going to be met with violence. And you know what they did? They went anyway. And when the Palestinian people go to protest by the Israeli border, guess what? They know there's going to, they're going to be met with violence. But they go anyway. People have to understand that they have the right to protest. And the black people in America have a right to protest against the killing of unarmed people. They have a right to protest to have the right to vote and to be treated with dignity and respect. And that is what the Palestinian people want in Palestine and Gaza. Your entire life, Linda, the West Bank, where your family is from, has been illegally, militarily occupied by Israel, as has the Gaza Strip and East Jerusalem. Do you believe the Palestinians in those territories will be free of occupation, will be able to live in freedom in your lifetime? Are you an optimist or a pessimist when it comes to Palestine? I'm, I'm optimistic, but not in my lifetime. I think I think that what I see is definitely happen, would happen in my children's lifetime. You know, I have my children are second generation Palestinian Americans and, and, and seeing the passion that my children who were born and raised in Brooklyn have for Palestine, for their family in Palestine, knowing that this work is going to continue. And you know this, Mehdi, as a first generation Palestinian American, I never lived in Palestine, but Palestine is, is a cause that lives deeply in our hearts. And I know that our next generation is going to be able to win freedom and liberation for the Palestinian people. I just don't see it in my lifetime. Well, I hope you're right about freedom and liberation. I hope you're wrong about it not being in your lifetime. I hope so too. That's a good thing to be wrong about. Linda Sassol, thanks for joining me on Deconstructed. Thank you so much for having me, Mehdi. That was Linda Sassol, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept and is distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Zach Young. Dina Sayed Ahmed is our production assistant. Lital Molard is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. 
And I'm Mehdi Hassan. You can follow me on Twitter at Mehdi R. Hassan. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every Friday. Go to theintercept.com forward slash deconstructed to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice, iPhone, Android, whatever. If you're already subscribed, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Oh, and if you're fasting for Ramadan, as I am, good luck. Thanks so much. See you next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.